Welcome today to all of our live churches and our network churches and those of you at Church Online. Next week, we're starting a brand new message series called The Counselor. I'm so excited because we're going to look at four different stories in the gospel when Jesus essentially counseled people. He asked them questions. We're going to see Jesus ask, do you want to be made well? We're going to see Jesus ask, why are you so afraid? We're going to see Jesus ask, do you think I can do this? And we're going to see Jesus ask, why do you doubt? If you need some counseling, we're going to look at the greatest counselor of all time, some stories in the Gospels from Jesus, and let him minister to us. Now, if you missed last week, you missed a lot. We had my good friend, Erwin McManus, teach an amazing message on his book, The Artisan's Soul. This is a book that will inspire you. I want to encourage you to get it and let it minister to you. He's teaching another message this week from the Bible uh, on the very same theme that will bless you. I love Erwin with all my heart. His church, Mosaic Church in Los Angeles, is an incredible church. If you know people there, you'll want to send them there. This guy loves Jesus. When I grow up, I want to be just like him. Would you give some Life Church love to my good friend, Erwin McManus? It's great to be back with you guys, and uh, Craig, I just want you to know that Mosaic in LA, we just consider ourselves um, really fortunate partners with Life Church. Uh, you guys are amazing, and I don't know if you know what you're doing here is affecting the entire planet. You're, you're not only creating community for people in your local cities and counties, you're actually redefining for people how relevant Jesus is for the world today, and so I'm just really grateful for your leadership, and uh, we, uh, we would follow you guys anywhere. So, I live in Los Angeles, and one of the unique things about LA is that LA is like an epicenter of human creativity. There, there are more artists in Los Angeles than any city in the world. And you would think, well, LA must produce artists, but they're actually not from LA. They're from Michigan. <laughs> and uh, they're, they're, they're from Oklahoma. They are, they're from Missouri. They're from the, the same neighborhoods and the same schools that all of you are from. Because there, there's a misconception about creativity and talent, that there are pools of creativity and talent in the world and the rest of us just get to admire their greatness. But the reality is that every small town in America is proof that creativity exists across the world. Because what does it really take to, to be an artist? If you're like me, I, I can't dance. I'm Spanish, and I can't dance. I don't know how that happened. And uh, you know, I really can't sing. I'm not a musician. I, I've really never excelled at anything in particular. And I love watching talented people. I love celebrating them. In fact, one of the things that people ask me all the time is, if you have a passion for something, why doesn't God make that happen in your life? Because sometimes you're just supposed to admire someone else, celebrate their talent. Celebrate their greatness, celebrate their beauty. But what I do know is inside of every human being, there are the essential ingredients of creating great art. That everyone's life is supposed to be a masterpiece. That everyone's life is supposed to be a work of art. But one of the things I, I've learned about art is that art is always expressive of the artist's soul. That you cannot create something authentically that isn't an extension of who you are as a human being. I remember years ago talking to this artist. He was incredibly brilliant and talented and, and, and also really tormented and haunted. 
We were sitting across the table, and, and he said, I'm having a hard time getting a job. And I said, why? And he said, because everybody who wants to hire me wants me to, to prostitute my talent for their own personal benefit. I said, well, what do you mean? He goes, well, they, they want me to create my art to promote themes that are not real. They don't want to deal with real human issues. And I said, well, what would be a real human issue or emotion? He goes, you know, pain, anger, violence. Those are real human issues. I said, well, what do they want you to promote? And he said, you know, things like happiness, joy, love. And I paused and, and I said, I don't for a second want to deny that emotions and human experiences like pain and sorrow and suffering are not real. Obviously, we live in a world of violence, a world filled with betrayal. But is it possible that human experiences and emotions like joy or love or even happiness could be authentic human experiences? And there was a long pause. And I could tell he was reflecting and thinking. And then he said, that thought has never occurred to me. And I realized the only reason he could create things that were reflective of darkness is because it was the only material in his soul. Everything that he created translated despair or hopelessness. It translated pain and disappointment. It translated sorrow and brokenness. And I realized as I've worked more and more in the world of artists that, that what an artist has to do is be authentic to who they are. But that doesn't mean that artists cannot create out of love, that artists cannot create out of hope, that artists cannot create something that's beautiful. What it does mean is that we need to have hope and beauty and love and life inside of us to create something real. If you saw Jesus as an artist, what kind of art would he create? I mean, what would be the reflection of the essence of Jesus? And that's why I want to take you to, I think, one of the more curious places where Jesus performs a miracle. It's Jesus' first miracle. It's when Jesus, well, turns water into wine. Now, this is the introduction, in a sense, of Jesus to his followers, that he is God walking among them. Let's look together for a moment. John chapter 2, beginning in verse 1. It says, On the third day, a wedding took place at Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Woman, why do you involve me? Jesus replied, my hour has not yet come. I, this is incidental, but I love the conversation between Jesus and his mom. All right? They're at a wedding. It's not even Jesus' wedding. It's not his family's wedding. It's just somebody else's wedding. They run out of wine. That's not Jesus' problem. But no, his mom makes it his problem. They're out of wine. He said, woman, what does it have to do with me? My time has not yet come. This is like a son saying, Mom, leave me alone. And I love what Mary does. She doesn't even respond to what he says. She ignores everything he said. says, just do what he tells you. Because I'm his mother. And he's going to do what I asked. And by the way, this is Mary's only command in all the scriptures. Do whatever Jesus tells you. It says, nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding a from 20 to 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, so they filled them to the brim. Then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. They did so, and the master of the banquet tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He did not realize where it had come from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. Then he called the bridegroom aside and said, everyone brings out the choice wine first, and then the cheaper wine, after the guests have had too much to drink because then they're too drunk to know they're drinking really cheap wine. But you have saved the best till now. What Jesus did here in Cana of Galilee was the first sign through which he revealed his glory, and his disciples believed in him. 
Do you ever read the Bible and you think to yourself, this line doesn't fit, but it must fit because it's in the Bible? Or you read something, this doesn't make any sense, but it has to make sense because it's in the Bible. See, this last line doesn't make any sense to me. And this is how Jesus revealed his glory. Really? Turning water into wine is how Jesus revealed his glory and his, and his disciples believed in him. They didn't need much, did they? I'm thinking, if, if I'm going to open up as God, I'm not going to start with turning water into wine. It feels like somewhere between a miracle and a card trick. I mean, I, I would walk on water. That sort of makes me divine, don't you think? <laughs> Feed thousands with a few fish and loaves. Call out someone's name who's been dead for four days and bring them out of the tomb alive. See, that is the kind of stuff you would expect from God. Turning water into wine, this is how he revealed his glory. I'm going, this doesn't make any sense. I, and I've read about this passage. I know there, there are ceremonial and religious and traditional implications in all of this. But what about like the actual implications? He just turned water into wine. And is it really a huge human dilemma that there's not enough wine at a wedding? I mean, of all the problems in the world, you'd think this would be one that God would say, you know, I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm tapping out on this one, all right? You, you can handle this one. I'm, I'm here for really huge, huge reasons. I'm here to deal with the brokenness of all of humanity. Fix your party. But I think there's something here that we do not want to mess. Because when, when Jesus takes them to this process of turning this water into wine, we learn a lot about Jesus as an artist. Because people ask me all the time, well, does art really matter? Does beauty matter? Does it really matter if we create something out of our lives? Does God really care about the small things in our life? And I go, well, let's look at Jesus' opening act. He turns water into wine at a wedding. It didn't change the world. It didn't end poverty. It didn't stop all the violence. It didn't end the wars. It didn't overthrow an empire and set a nation free. And so there's something here that we need to make sure we see. Oh, and you know how the story goes, right? He has them grab all these giant barrels that are empty, and he says, fill them with water. And then when they fill them with water, he says, all right, now take it to the master of the ceremony. And I'm thinking to myself, why didn't he have them fill it with water? I mean, because if he can turn water into wine, can't he put water into empty barrels? Okay, you take care of the first half, I'll, I'll show up later. I mean, this is kind of one of those odd kind of things going, wait a minute, why does he have him fill it up with water? Wouldn't it be a greater miracle if he just, bam, water in the barrels? Look at that. But I'm not finished. <laughs> but one of the unique ways that God works is that he calls us to bring what we have so that when we bring what we have, he touches that and gives us what it becomes after he has been a part of it. But by the way, we didn't create the water either. See, this is the nuance of this thing, is that God created the water as well. See, God created the water because God, in his essence, is the source of all life. And so God created water because we need water to live. He sustains us all, whether we believe in him or do not believe in him, whether we acknowledge him or absolutely reject him. God provides water for all life. And so that water that they brought wasn't something they created. It was something God created that God had already given them. 
And that's the crazy thing about the way God works in our lives. This is the creative process, is that God's not asking you to create something out of nothing. He's asking you to take what you already have, that he's already given you, and bring it to him so he can do more with you and with that to make the world better. And so when God's saying, I want your talent, I want your intelligence, I want your passions, I want your your discipline, I want your character, I want all of you, he's not asking you for something that he didn't give you. He's asking you to bring back to him and trust him with the very things he entrusted you from the beginning. See, all of us were like water, but we're like water that has not yet been put in the jar given back to God. And then he turns that water into wine, but it's kind of nuanced he doesn't turn it into wine, and then they know it's wine. He says, now just serve it to the master of the ceremony. And so they take that water, and somewhere in there, it becomes wine, and the master says, this is the best wine I've ever tasted. Why? I mean, everybody's drunk. Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> right? See, that's the implication, all right? Everyone's already had too much to drink. No one is really at the height of their at the height of their awareness. They've sort of been dulled in their senses. So why provide the best wine? Have you ever felt like you've just wasted your best stuff on people who don't care? I mean, why would Jesus provide the best? Because every artist creates out of their essence. And God could never create anything that wasn't the best in the world. Now imagine the implications about you that you are created in the image and likeness of God. You are a reflection of the essence of God. That material for creating is a soul, and you have been given by God a soul designed in his image and likeness, and everything God creates is the best. He never makes cheap wine, even if it will do. They would have been more than happy with cheap wine. They would have been more than happy with a lower-grade quality, but you see, when God gets involved, it's always the best. And I love the fact that Jesus didn't sign his name on the barrel, wine by Jesus. You ever notice that that's what, like, you know, Christians do? We make Christian t-shirts, you know, human by Jesus. We put little fish on our cars, running the red light by Jesus. We, 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 We do all these things, and we go, and it's a Christian film, right? And it's Christian music. And it's Christian art, and we even say it's a church because we want to make sure that people know, right? Because if we didn't add Christian or add Jesus, they wouldn't know it's Jesus because it's usually average. And in fact, I have to be honest with you, out in L.A., Christian is synonymous with average. So when you say Christian music or Christian art or Christian films or Christian stuff, it just means average stuff or below average stuff. How did we get there when what Jesus does is always the best? He provides the best wine in the world. See, what we need to realize is that we need to bring God our best selves. We need to get up every morning going, God, I want to bring everything I have, all my passion, all my talent, all my discipline. God, I want to bring everything I have. I'm going to be fully alive in this moment because what you deserve from me, God, is the best of who I am. And if all you have to bring is the water, that's what you bring. But you need to realize that when God is finished with you, you're going to be the best wine on the planet. And I love the fact that Jesus felt confident enough in what he created that they would want to know where the source was from. Our our, our community of faith, we we took on the, the name Mosaic. And I had so many people criticize me 
because it wasn't Mosaic Church. It was just Mosaic. They go, well, are you embarrassed of being a church? I go, no. What I want to do is I want to prove we are one. Because, see, I don't wear a shirt that says human, just in, in case you're not sure. <laughs> right, you know? You know, I'm not a giraffe. You, you know, I don't have to... It, because you just, you, you perceive, and you feel, and you touch, and you see, and you realize this person's a human. See, what would happen if we said, we're going to let the quality of our lives, the quality of our work, the quality of everything we do, we're going to make it so extraordinary, we're going to be so committed to being the best of the best, to be the best teachers and the best architects, to be the best doctors and the best scientists, we're going to be the best dancers and writers, we're going to be the best parents in the pl- on the planet, we're going to be the best humans in the world, and we're going to be defined by love, and when people drink of our lives, you know, where did that wine come from? Because it's better than anything we've ever tasted in the world. There, there's another time that Jesus used strange material for a miracle. This, this one is kind of unusual, I think. But there, this other one is, is, for me, more interesting in some ways. It's in John chapter 9. It says, as Jesus went along, he saw a man blind from birth. His disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Have you ever noticed that like, theologians care more about who to blame than how to heal? Rabbi, who sinned? This man or his parents sinned that he was born blind? He was blind, but he wasn't deaf. He could hear them talking. (laughs) And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned, but this happened so that the works of God might be displayed in him. As long as it is day, we must do the work of him who sent me. Night is coming when no one can work. While I'm in the world, I am the light of the world. And after saying this, he spit on the ground, made some mud with the saliva, and put it on the man's eyes. Go, he told him. Wash in the pool of Siloam, this word means sent. So the man went and washed and came home seeing. His neighbors and those who had formerly seen him begging asked, isn't this the same man who used to sit and beg? Some others claimed that he was. Others said, no, he only looks like him, but he himself insisted, I am the man. How then were your eyes opened, they asked. He replied, the man they called Jesus made some mud and put it on my eyes. And then he told me to go to Siloam and wash. You ever wonder why Jesus healed like that? I mean, again, he's the God that doesn't need the water to turn it into wine. He can create, because he created the water, he can do it again. He didn't forget that one. And he could just touch the man, and he would see, or he could just speak, and his eyes would be open. He could just have a thought, and that man's sight would be returned. Why go through all of this? I think some of it is God is an artist, and he wants to keep teaching us how to create out of our lives and through our lives because all of us are works of art and artists at work. And so he starts spitting on the ground. And with spit, he takes dirt and he starts making mud. I've done some research. It takes a lot of spit to make mud. Okay, a lot of spit. And this isn't like dainty spit or anything like that. It's, it's manly spit. It takes a lot of spit to make mud. And again, this guy's blind, but he's not deaf. He's hearing Jesus spit. I I love like reading theologians on on passages like this, trying to explain away what's happening. One of my favorites was, well, this was divine spit. You know, the divine spittle. It was was God spit. (laughs) This is the best you can do. It's God spit. Look, spit is spit. I'm telling you that 
Before God stepped into flesh, he wasn't spitting in eternity. This is man spit. Jesus being fully God, fully man, this is the fully man spit side. And spit, you may think, well, maybe it was cultural. Maybe spit was more valued back then, right? Because spit would sort of be at the bottom scale, don't you think? I mean, think about it. You have spit right now in your mouth. Feel it. It doesn't bother you. Without spit, you die. You'll dehydrate. You need spit. But, but, but there's a thing about spit where, I mean, imagine if someone else spit into a glass and then they said, we'll give you a million dollars if you'll drink that other person's spit. You're like, I just rather die poor than drink it because someone else's spit would be horrible, right? But you know what's strange? If you spit into a glass, you wouldn't drink your own spit. It's only okay as long as it's inside, but once it's out, it's spit. I mean, you, I don't, it's not mine. Like, you know, you ever just sneezed really bad? It's not mine, right? You know, just, just oh, man, because it's spit. And that's, that's, that's what Jesus is using. This is his material, is spit. Couldn't he upgrade? Oil. Oil's a lot more elegant, right? Spit. And then dirt. He doesn't even upgrade the second material. It's spit and dirt. So he takes the dirt that they walk on every day, and he starts mixing it together, and he creates mud. And I can only imagine what the crowd was saying. Oh, yeah, no, what is going on here? What's he doing? He's a madman. And then he gets up and starts moving toward the blind man. I could just feel the crowd kind of moving away. Yeah. And the blind man going, what's happening here? I feel he's moving toward me. And then Jesus puts the mud on the man's eyes. And here to me, this is, this is the brutal moment. He says, all right, go and wash. Doesn't heal him. And he says, go to the pool of Siloam and wash. No, pro- no promise. Wouldn't you expect a promise? Isn't so much of the way we try to convince people to follow Jesus is here are the promises? No promise at all. Now this man who was blind is also humiliated. Well, what, what kind of person puts spit and dirt, creates mud, and puts it on a man's eyes, and then says, go, go wash at the pool of Siloam? And not only does he give him a command that's virtually impossible for him, he's blind, he doesn't even offer him any help. He doesn't appeal to the crowd, help this man get to the pool of Siloam. He doesn't invite one of his disciples to take on a new task. I mean, why doesn't he say, Bartholomew, take the man to the pool? I mean, really, what did Bartholomew ever do? He had no job. He did nothing of value. I mean, the guy says nowhere. This would, this would be Bartholomew's moment. I took the blind guy to the pool of Siloam. Remember me? That's why. I'm one of the 12. <laughs> nothing. Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Have you ever felt as if you were in a worse condition after you were touched by Jesus than before? Come on, let's be honest for a minute. Have you ever felt like you trusted God and he left you humiliated? I have. See, this is what we don't talk about, this period of life between the moment God cakes us with spit and dirt and the moment where we go to the pool of Siloam and wash. Where we're not really sure what's going to happen. There's so much uncertainty. I got a text from a, a, a really influential speaker who loves God and and his daughter was in an airplane, and she crashed, or they crashed, and she crawled out of the plane over the person she loved. It was the only survivor of a plane crash. And, and 
We, we probably see the world a little differently. So I was surprised I get a text from him and says, hey, can we talk? And so I said, sure, of course. And he said, hey, my daughter just went through this horrific accident and she's having a really difficult time. And not only is she physically struggling from all the third degree burns, but her soul is really traumatized. And you're the only person she listens to on your podcast. And would you be willing to talk to her on the phone for a few moments? I said, are you crazy? Tell me where you live, and me and my daughter will get on a plane, and we will fly anywhere you are, and we'll sit down and do anything we can, because if it was my daughter and someone could help her, I would do anything to get them here. He goes, you'd come, and I said, just ask her if she wants that, and he talked to her, and so she said yes, and so me and Mariah got on a plane and flew across the country and then drove several hours to their place, and, and we're there having a conversation and trying to help her reclaim a faith that was lost long before. And in the middle of that, I started getting all these emails because I had a company. I was in the film industry and in the fashion industry and the tech industry. And, and we were doing really, really well, and life seemed to be going beautifully. And we, we had a ton of employees and different offices. And, and I got all these emails from lawyers telling me that my business partner has decided to cut me out of the company and took ownership of everything I'd worked for. And I lost everything in that moment. And in my mind, I'm like, God, I'm here across the country helping this family that I don't know, trying to care for this girl that's someone else's daughter because this is what you've taught me. I've got my daughter here, and we're doing this out of love for you. And right now, you're going to do this right now. Oh, I know. God didn't do it. You're going to let this happen right now. Whichever... Is the right way of saying, God, why? And I'm trying to deal with this and, and care for this family, and I felt as if my gut had just been ripped out of my throat, and we're driving back to the airport, and I thought I was going to die. I just lost everything. I watched millions of dollars disappear in a second. I had to fly across the country, land back in L.A., and sit down with my wife, who was an orphan, from the age of eight to 18, she lived in a foster home who was left starving in a government project eating nothing but turnips and ketchup. The person that I love more than anyone in the world that I wanted to provide a home for and some security and stability in life, and I had to fly across the country and sit down with my wife and say, I've lost everything. It was one of the most humiliating moments of my life. It felt like God had spit on the ground and mixed it with dirt and put mud on my face and then told me to find my own way to the pool. And I stumbled through that moment. I couldn't eat for weeks. I lost like 20 pounds in 20 days, which now looking back was actually quite good for me. But uh, I didn't feel good then. I couldn't hold food down. I remember when I looked at Kim and I said, I lost everything. My wife without meeting a, a, missing a beat without blinking an eye. She looked at me and she said, I thought I was your everything. I said, who is this woman? I, I, I mean, who, who wrote this script for her? And, and she goes, we've been poor before. We'll be poor again, but we'll be fine. It's just a part of our journey together. And when she said, I thought I was your everything, I didn't know how to recover from that. I, I, I didn't have a really good response. So I said, I, I lost my other everything. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you know. You know what I'm talking about? The everything that, that, that pays for the other everything. And uh, the everything that makes you feel like a man. 
that everything that makes you feel like you have value, that everything that f- makes you feel like God is with you, that everything that makes you feel like you're fulfilling your calling, that everything that makes you feel like your life matters, that everything that makes you get up in the morning, that everything that allows you to keep breathing. See, I lost all that. And for the next 12 months, and that was just 18 months ago, I had to take a loan on our house and pay back everything that was lost and finish every project that they didn't finish. And I just felt as if I was going to drown. And it was one of those moments in life where I felt like I was walking around with spit and dirt turned into mud, caked out in my eyes. And I was stumbling and crawling and walking in the dark going, God, I don't know how to get to the pool of Siloam. By the way, for all of us Gentiles, that passage, John adds, Siloam means sent. And he puts that there so we can know that Siloam is this beautiful metaphor for the place of obedience. It's the pool of scent. It's the place you must go. And in this moment, Jesus is saying to this blind man, I want you to trust me. I want you to go to the pool. And if I were that guy, I would just be grabbing a lot of Jesus' leg, going, you're not going anywhere until you give me what I need. Because a lot of times what we want is we want to hide under the covers of Jesus when he's sending us to go and we feel as if he's left us to our own devices. But when we trust him and we go in obedience to his voice, we find that God is the true master artisan who can take spit and dirt and create a mud that brings us the healing we so desperately need. What I love about this moment is that Jesus takes the most common material that we have, dirt, And by the way, God gave us that material before himself. And then he takes the most common material, the most base material, the most unviable material from the body of the Son of God, which is spit. And then he mixes it together and says, let me show you what I can do with the least viable ingredients in the world. And if that's what he could do with spit and mud, what in the world could he do with you? What in the world could he do with us. Some of us, we feel like water. We feel ordinary and common. And we just need to let Jesus, the master artist, make us work of art and turn us into wine. But I know there's some of you, you, you feel like you're just spit and dirt. You feel like you're just mud. But I love about the combination of spit and dirt. It's this beautiful reminder that if we just give God who we are and what we are, even if we feel like it's worthless, but we allow him to make us pliable and moldable and adapt because what the mud has the capacity to do is to be shaped by the hands of God. And in that moment, everything changes. I, um, I'm on a crusade. I, I'm on a crusade to end this view of being human, that it's all about standardization and conforming. It's all about the elimination of sin. It's all about what you shouldn't do. God didn't call us to obedience so that we could be puppets. The end game is not obedience, it's freedom. 
He calls us to obedience so that we can be free. And by the way, the end game isn't actually freedom, it's creativity. See, God wants us to trust him and obey his voice so that we might live free, so that we can create the life that he created us to live. You are a work of art. But now it's time to become an artist at work and realize that through you, someone else's life will become more beautiful. Through you. You will paint a future filled with hope and meaning and joy. You are the instrument that God has chosen to create the world he dreams of. The question now is, will you pick up the brush and begin to paint? I thank you, Father. There are seven billion containers of beauty and wonder, of creativity and imagination, waiting to be touched by your hand so that we can become the material of a more beautiful world. I pray, Father, for each person within the sound of my voice that they would realize that Jesus did not come to control them but to liberate them. That the scriptures are not the material from which the world is to be standardized, but that the scriptures are a manifesto of creativity. And it's time for us to hear your voice and live in that freedom. I pray that every person hearing my voice would dream and risk and create. This is my prayer in Jesus' name. Amen. At all of our churches, let's continue in an attitude of prayer. God, we thank you so much for this message that you sent to inspire, to encourage, to, to lift, and even to bring healing, God, in our souls. As you pray today at all of our different churches, some of you may be in a season right now where you feel like your gut is being ripped down of your throat, like, like Erwin talked about, and, and, and you're, you're hurting right now. And you would give anything just to have a, a touch from Jesus and, and some healing, and yet you feel like you're in the middle of dirt and spit, that you just, you don't know how to get to the, to the, to the pool, and, and you don't know how to wash, and, and you really need guidance, you need direction, you need, you need healing right now. I want to take a moment and pray for those of you that, that are hurting, and you say, I really, I, I do need that encouragement, the direction, and, and the touch of the love of Jesus right now. All of our churches, if you're in a season like that, it'd be my, my honor to pray with you. Would you just slip up your hand right now at all of our different churches and say, I, I really am going through something right now. It's my honor to pray for you. God, I, I thank you for your goodness and your presence and your grace that even in different locations, God, you know the intimate details of what every person is going through. And God, you care even more about this than we could ever imagine God, we pray that just as your son touched a blind man to bring healing, God, that your presence and your power would touch our souls. And in the middle, God, of not understanding or not being able to change our own circumstances, we thank you, God, that you are good, that you are with us, and that your presence can be enough to carry us and sustain us when we don't even know what to do. God, we pray that through any means necessary, be it spit and um, on our eyes, God, be it, be it what you would do um, through other people, God, through the way you'd use our circumstances, that you would bring a healing, 
God, bring a comfort. God, that your presence would minister to your church as we put our faith, God, in you. As you keep praying today at all of our different churches, for many of you today will be a turning point unlike any other day that you've ever had because God brought you here very specifically to do a divine work in you. Erwin uh, said there are seven billion containers in a sense that we are, we're kind of a jar a clay. We're a container. We're, we're human beings that are actually made out of dirt. And on our own, we can try to do some good things, but ultimately, we need to be touched by the master, the creator of the universe, who can touch us, heal us, and transform us. Some of you right now, you may be at a very low place, and, and it, it almost appears that at times, God will allow us to get to a place where we're so low that the only thing we can do is to look up to him and look for his grace and look for his healing. At all of our different churches, there may be some of you right now who realize there is something more. That I, I believe with all my heart that there has to be an eternity, that there has to be a God, that there has to be someone who, who created me for even more, and yet I can't figure out how to get there. The problem is that our sin nature, it separates us from God. And the good news is we serve a God through his son Jesus who loved us, came to deal with our sin. Today at all of our churches, there are those of you, you're going to recognize that you can't work your way to God, you can't be good enough for God, and you want to call on God's Son, Jesus. And I want to give you that chance to do it at all of our different churches. Those of you who say, yes, I need forgiveness, and yes, I need a Savior, I believe Jesus came for me, and I want to surrender my life to Him by faith. If that's your prayer, would you lift up your hands high right now and just say, yes, I surrender my life to Him. Just lift up your hands at all of our churches and say, yes. By faith, I give my life to him. Those of you at Church Online, you can click right below me, and I'm going to ask all of you to join with those around you in, in prayer. Just pray aloud. Pray, Heavenly Father, I need you in my life. I recognize I am a sinner. I need your forgiveness. I need your grace. Jesus, would you touch me? Heal me. Forgive me. Change me and make me new. From now on, my life is not my own. I surrender it completely to you. Make me your servant to create, to love, and to bring healing through your son Jesus. In his name I pray. All of our churches, would you thank God for new life in Christ. <laughs>